Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you here this morning. Reva, thank you so much for just those words of encouragement. Uh, I, I was just so touched and blessed. Uh, Jesus changes lives. And uh, oh, thank you. Thank you for blessing all of us. Well, as you drove in, you probably saw some different things around the parking lot. It's actually happening. It's happening. Yes. Our contractor is preparing our campus for the construction of our new children's center. It is actually happening. And for those of you who walked between the buildings, maybe on your way out, you can see they've started to outline the extension of that building. So you'll see on the grass a white line marking the extension of that building. Wow, it's happening. And uh, I want to thank you in advance for your flexibility and understanding. If you've ever gone through a home improvement project, things get out of place for a little while, but good things await. Good things await. And so I can't wait to see what God's going to do on this campus throughout the next several months. And speaking of good things, next Sunday we kick off Missions Month, and we're excited because this year our theme for Missions Month is Gospel Essentials. And for the next month, starting next Sunday, we're going to focus our attention on what God is doing locally and globally. And so we're going to pause this current series for a month, and we'll focus our attention on what God is doing in and through the local body here at E-Free Church. And then we'll come back to this series. We can't wait to see you each Sunday uh, throughout the month of February. Well, this morning, I've titled my message, He Must Increase. I must decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. We're going to wrap up John chapter 3 today. Now, back in December, on December 10th, which was week three of our current series, we introduced you to a man by the name of John the Baptist. And John the Apostle, remember, is the author of the Gospel of John. Okay, so we don't want to get those two men confused. John the Apostle wrote the Gospel of John along with four other books. So John the Apostle wrote five books in the New Testament. John's Gospel, and then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, those three letters, as well as the book of Revelation. And in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, which we saw back in December, he introduced us to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner to Jesus. He prepared the way for Jesus. And for those of you who were here on December 10th for that message, you might recall that during my message, I talked about hidden agendas. Do you remember that? For those who were here. And I mentioned that nobody likes it when other people have hidden agendas, right? We don't like it. We don't like getting together with somebody who has a hidden agenda or an ulterior motive. And I shared with you that Sunday that I love it when somebody reaches out to me and says, Hey, Tim, you want to go grab coffee? Hey, Tim, you want to have lunch together? And then they follow that up with, by the way, no agenda. I love it when I hear the words no agenda. I get it. We all have meetings, and we have meeting agendas, and those are important. We get together, we talk about specific matters when we get together for meetings. But every so often when somebody says, hey, Tim, let's get together, no agenda. I'm like, yes, I'm there. 
I'm looking forward to it. Well, right around that time, in December, when I preached that message, right at that time, one of our life groups here at church, they were getting together for their annual life group Christmas dinner. And they got together at a local restaurant. And uh, they were so kind enough to invite Joanne and me to join their life group for this dinner. And it just so happened that that dinner was on the Wednesday following the Sunday where I talked about no hidden agendas, okay? So if you're following, that message was on December 10th. The life group dinner was scheduled at a restaurant that following Wednesday. So Joanne and I arrived and we got together with the other life group members there and we sat down and we had a wonderful meal and we had great conversation. It was just so much fun just talking around that table. And about halfway through the dinner, one of the life group members gets my attention and then gets the attention of everybody else and says, well, Tim, the real reason we invited you here is. And then he started laughing. And then I started laughing. And then everybody started laughing because he was joking. He was joking, and it was so wonderful because, of course, he was referring back to that Sunday's message, and that just made that evening that much better because even before he said that joke, we are having a blast just talking and sharing good food, and after he made that joke, it made it even funner. And that night when Joanne and I drove home, we, just, we were talking about how we were so encouraged by pure, sweet fellowship. We love it when we get together and you're just encouraged and you leave that gathering, whatever that gathering is, feeling like, wow, I experienced Jesus in a pure, sweet way. And so thank you to those life group members for blessing us and for that joke. That was like the perfect timing for that joke. Well, we're talking about a man named John the Baptist who had no agenda. Here was a man who had every opportunity to build his own name up, to sing his own praises, and to promote his own agenda. And yet, throughout John the Baptist's ministry, his one agenda was this, to be a witness to the light. That was his sole agenda in life, to be a witness to the light, and that light being Jesus Christ. And by the way, don't get confused when I say John the Baptist. Okay, that wasn't his denomination. Okay, John was not a Baptist. They had no denominations back then, so they had no Presbyterians or Lutherans or Methodists or Baptists. He was just John, and he baptized people. John was like this Old Testament prophet. He would go around preaching Jesus Christ wherever he went. And whenever people tried to pump him up, he would say, the one who's coming after me is far more powerful than I am. And that tells us so much about John's character. And it wasn't this false humility, right? Sometimes people have a humble brag attitude, right? Oh, I, oh, I don't know. I'm just a nobody. I don't know why people are just flocking to, to my side. I don't know. It wasn't a humble brag at all. John knew exactly what God's plan was. He understood what it meant to be the forerunner to Jesus. 
Do you know what the job of a forerunner is? It's very simple. Here's the job of a forerunner. A forerunner prepares the way for someone else and then steps out of the way. A forerunner prepares the way and then steps out of the way. The forerunner doesn't expect to share the limelight. John the Baptist knew his role in God's plan. And today, John the Apostle reintroduces us to John the Baptist. So we heard about John the Baptist in chapter 1, and now here we are in chapter 3, and John the Apostle is going to reintroduce us to John the Baptist. So let's pick up in chapter 3, verse 22. I'll read to you verses 22 to 26 to begin our time this morning. John the Apostle writes this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. We'll stop right there. So John the Apostle begins verse 22 with the words, after this. John's referring to the conversation Jesus had with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. So after Jesus had this conversation, he went off with his disciples, and Jesus actually started beginning to baptize people. Now, as Jesus began baptizing people, John the Baptist knew at that point that one day his own followers would eventually go and follow Jesus. And whether John's followers knew it or not, some of them did not like that. We're told that there was an argument between some of John's disciples and another person. And the argument was over ceremonial washing. Basically, people would purify themselves in order to be forgiven of their sins. And there was controversy over that. There was disagreement. And so John's disciples came back to him. They said, look, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, he's starting to baptize people. And look, everyone is going to him. Imagine for a moment, if you owned a restaurant. And in your town, for years and years, you served your local community and your loyal customers year after year. But let's say one day, a restaurant serving the same cuisine as your restaurant opens up across the street. And then... Each week that passes, you see more of your customers going over to that restaurant. And you see lines forming out the door of that restaurant. But people are willing to wait in line. And all the while, your restaurant is half empty. I'd imagine, 
I'd imagine that a little jealousy could creep in. And I'd imagine that you might even try to lure those customers back. Maybe you'd give them a discount, maybe free beverages with their purchase. So you do everything in your power to win back those customers. So what was John's response to his disciples when they went to him and said, Jesus is baptizing and everyone is going to him? What was John's response? Was it, oh no, we got to step up our game. We need to start baptizing more people. We need to promote our baptisms. We got to get the word out. Disciples, hurry up and work harder. Was that his response? Well, not quite. Here's how John responded. Look at verse 27. To this... John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete he must become greater. I must become less. Church, there is so much, and I mean so much, that you and I can learn from this one passage alone. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You see, John the Baptist, he had a right perspective on his ministry. The temptation for jealousy has always been there throughout history. The classic example in the Old Testament is that of King Saul and David. Did you know that everybody loved King Saul? Everybody loved King Saul until a handsome young warrior came along and defeated a giant. And not only was David a handsome young warrior, he was also a poet. Okay, so he was a warrior with a tender side. I mean, that's irresistible. <laughs> I mean, he was a complete package. And when David killed Goliath and returned home, you know what happened? All the women, all the women lined the streets and they were singing and dancing. And here's what they sang. They sang, Saul has slain his thousands. David, his tens of thousands. And when Saul heard this, it infuriated him. And from that moment on, Saul sought evil against David. You know, even when people hear or see someone else's success story, what might make that person initially happy for the other person can sometimes, oftentimes, turn into jealousy. Let's face it. Maybe you have a loved one, a friend, 
a coworker, a fellow student. And the reality is this. We often like to see the people around us succeed, but sometimes the reality is we don't want them to exceed or succeed too much, right? Sometimes it's not good if they succeed too much, and it often results in jealousy. And especially nowadays, since our lives are out there for everyone to see on social media, sometimes our initial joy for someone can turn into jealousy. And the reality is also this. Churches are not immune to that temptation to compare themselves with other churches. Oh, that church over there, they're just bursting at the seams, growing exponentially. Well, that church over there, they have such cool programs. That church over there, they have it all together. Well, first of all, no church has it all together. I guarantee you that. Because I've talked to many pastors, and pastors of every church, shape and size, share the same struggles. There's no perfect church that has it all together. And, and much like when we compare anything from a critical standpoint, whether it's our marriages, our families, our careers, our churches, here's what usually happens. We end up comparing our weakness to their strength. And when you do that, there's no winning. It's been said, comparison is the thief of joy. True. Comparison is the thief of joy. John the Baptist had the right perspective. Everything he had in ministry was a gift from God. And because John knew this, because he knew that everything he had was a gift from God, he was committed to stewarding his gift to the best of his ability. The word ownership is a word that, well, we often hear in a church context. And I understand there are good intentions when we hear the word ownership. Right? Because ownership is often used to encourage people to get more involved in church. Take ownership of the church. And, and that's a good thing. That's a good intention. I believe a better perspective over ownership is stewardship. We are stewards. You know, the Bible never calls us owners. God is the owner. We are the stewards. And this isn't simply a matter of semantics. You see, how we view our role in the church often determines how we handle any situation, whether it be a major decision, a small decision, conflicts. One author says this, Stewardship invites humble interactions with others, while ownership invites pride and a desire to take away the agency of others. I'll say that again. Stewardship invites 
humble interactions with others, while ownership invites pride and a desire to take away the agency of others. If our attitude is this, if our attitude is, this is mine, I came up with this idea, I started it, I built it, the minute someone comes along and changes it, here's what happens. Our sense of ownership becomes threatened. And it usually ends up in hurt feelings or angry feelings. That's why God has called us to stewardship. God's the owner. We are the stewards. And stewardship often involves graciously stepping aside to allow others to fulfill their God-given roles. Stewardship often involves stepping aside to allow others to fulfill their roles. You see, John clearly understood that truth. That's why he could say, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And then John says, that joy is mine. It is now complete. Did you know that it is not the best man's place at a wedding to draw attention to himself? Now, I've been to a few weddings where, sadly, that's happened. And that's unfortunate. A best man's place is not to draw attention to himself. Imagine you attend a wedding and you see the groom come in and take his place next to the minister. And the groom is looking handsome in his beautiful black tuxedo. And then his groomsmen come in one by one and stand next to him. And they are in their handsome black tuxedos except for the best man. He's in his bright yellow suit. He's not self-aware. It is not a best man's place to draw attention to himself at a wedding. That's why women know not to wear white to a wedding unless you're the bride. Women, you don't wear a white dress to a wedding as a guest. It's good to be self-aware. It's not the place for the best man to draw attention to himself. John the Baptist knew who he was, and just as importantly, he knew who he wasn't. He was not the Messiah. And he knew that one day he would give way to the Messiah. I recently read this comment from a, an author, and it just really just struck me. He said, John the Baptist lost his congregation to Jesus. And he was completely happy about it. I don't know too many pastors who'd be happy about losing congregation members to another church. John lost his congregation to Jesus, and he was completely happy about it. That's why John could say, he must become greater. I must become 
less. And he meant that with every ounce of his being. Church, the more of Jesus and the less of me is always a good thing. The more of Jesus and the less of us is always a good thing. That should be the motto of every Christian leader and of every Christ follower. On Sundays, if I step off the stage, and if you've remembered me more than Jesus, then I failed. But all you teachers out there, all you leaders of Bible studies, life groups, adult Bible fellowships, if after any study, those in attendance remember Jesus and forget about you, you've succeeded. That ought to be a sober reminder to all of us. The more of Jesus, the less of me in any context is a good thing. God's called us to steward his church. And in this season, every one of us is a steward. For those who are newer to our church family, I encourage you to see God and ask God, God, how are you calling me to steward your church? You've brought me here, God. How can I steward your church? Let's continue on. Look at verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. In this closing section of chapter 3, John reminds his disciples where Jesus came from. He came from above, from heaven. This is John's way of saying Jesus is supreme over all. He has authority over all. He then reminds his disciples of what Jesus said, which is, Jesus said, I can do nothing apart from my heavenly Father. Nothing. Jesus never went against the will of his heavenly Father. Do you remember at the beginning of our series, I mentioned to you where John the Apostle began his gospel? He didn't begin it with the public ministry of Jesus. He didn't begin it with Jesus' birth. He didn't even begin it with the genealogy of Jesus. John the Apostle went all the way back to creation to begin his gospel. Not because Jesus was born at creation, but because Jesus was there at creation along with the Father and the Spirit. The triune God was there 
before there was time. And creation came about because of the triune God. John wanted to make sure that you and I know Christ's deity. But there's also Christ's humanity. So when Christ came into the world, he did not stop being God. He was still 100% God, but then he became 100% man. Now, what we often don't think about, and I would say this, what we often forget as Christ followers is this, that when Jesus walked the earth, he actually did not take advantage of his deity when it came to his own needs. So he always operated within the limits of his humanity. That's why when we say, be like Jesus, we should not say, well, that's not fair. He's Jesus. I mean, he's God. When Jesus walked the earth, when it came to his humanity, ready? He always relied on the Holy Spirit. We just read that God the Father gave the Son the Spirit immeasurably. So whenever Jesus came upon a situation that required him to think about his own needs, he did not tap into his deity. Don't you think when Jesus was hungry, don't you think he could have commanded a ribeye steak to appear? Medium rare? Absolutely. He could have commanded a steak to appear. When he got thirsty, could he have commanded a big gulp? Absolutely. But did he? No. When it came to his humanity, he always operated within the limits of his humanness. And he relied on the Holy Spirit. Think about how tempting it would be for us if we had a superpower to use for our own gain. Right? Here, here's a practical example. How many times have we been to a wedding reception and we're hoping that our table gets called first to the buffet line? We've all been there, right? We don't want to be hangry. And so we sit down at our table and we're hoping and praying that our table is released first to the buffet line or at least second, maybe third, okay. But nobody wants to be at the last table. Well, Jesus, think about this. Jesus, in his deity, he could have tapped into that superpower. And I think if he did, here's what he would do. I think, I'm, I'm confident of this. If Jesus tapped into the superpower and he could predict which table would be dismissed first to the buffet line, he'd look at that table and then go sit at the last table. I'm confident that would be Jesus. And the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Philippians to have the same mind as that of Jesus Christ, who did not regard equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself, took the form of a bondservant, So when we say, be like Jesus, 
Never allow this thought to enter your mind. That's impossible. He's God. Remember, Jesus in all his humanity relied on the Holy Spirit to carry out the will of the Father. And John the Baptist had the mind of Christ. The one question that never entered John the Baptist's mind was this, what's in it for me? Never once did that enter John's mind. The only question he ever asked himself was, what's in it for him? What's in it for him? He must become greater. I must become less. So here's our assignment for this week. I want to make this as practical as possible. When our alarm goes off tomorrow morning, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and so on, before we get up out of bed, why don't we pause for a moment and then remind us, remind ourselves of the words, he must become greater, I must become less today. And here's how that fleshes out practically. When we say he must become greater, I must become less today, what that means is this. Every time we leave a conversation this week, whether it's with a loved one, a friend, a coworker, a fellow student, a stranger, whenever we leave a conversation, why don't we ask ourselves as we're walking away from that conversation, did that person see Jesus in me? Or did that person receive a bunch of complaining from me? Did that person see Jesus in me? Or did that person just receive a lot of bitterness from me? Now, remember, we're flawed, right? Reva said we're all flawed. We're not perfect. We will still make mistakes. But our goal this week is to reduce the number of times we walk away and say, oh, that person received complaining from me. So let's just reduce that by one or two this week, all right? And then the next week, another one or two. That doesn't mean that you have to be fake and phony. Even in the midst of a trial, if somebody asks you, how are you doing? And you have a real struggle, it's okay to share that. But how we see that struggle, the perspective we have makes all the difference. Yeah, you know, it's been a tough week for me. But God's teaching me. He's causing me to show grace to that person because he reminds me of the grace he shows me every day. Let's be like Jesus this week. We can be like Jesus because we have the Spirit of God within us. He must become greater. I must become less. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage today. Thank you for examples like John the Baptist. And we confess, I confess, it is so hard because pride and selfishness get in the way. But help us, Lord, collectively as a church, 
and personally as Christ followers. To remind ourselves each and every day this week that Jesus must become greater. We must become less. For when that happens, we begin to look more and more like Jesus. I'm excited to look more and more like Jesus this week. I pray these things in his name. Amen.